0: Well, we got a lot of ground to cover, so I'm just going to jump right into the film. Right at the beginning, we see Harry. And he is exactly as emotionally vulnerable and distraught as he should be. He just watched someone who was a friend, who was somewhat close to him, uh, be murdered. Like, ignoring the return of Voldemort, or ignoring the return of some great dark wizard of evil. That's, that's not exactly pleasant, so of course, naturally, uh, <clears throat> uh, Mr. Dursley not Vernon, the kid, decides to push that a little bit too far. A uh, couple of things I find interesting about this. First, you'll notice that Harry, of course, rushes him and shoves the wand right up under his neck, right? And as he's doing it, everyone else in the gang, in Mr. Dursley's gang, is just, ha ha ha, he's got his stick, isn't that cute? Dudley's like, oh god, oh god, he's actually afraid of it as he Should be. He knows what magic is, and that it's real. Then the storm comes in as the Dementors show up, and he starts freaking out. I'm not doing this. What are you doing? I'm not doing this. No, no. Dementors show up. So, thankfully, Mrs. Fig was nearby, which needs a little bit more for those of you who read the books. By the way, um, this is going to be relevant in the very next scene, but uh, I know that this film is rather substantially different from the books. I mean, they all have been to some extent or another, but I feel like 5, 6, and 7, and seven and a half are the ones where they really start to diverge from the books rather substantially. Now, I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I know some people who are uh, rather adamantly on one side or the other of that particular debate. I'm just, it's whatever. No, what I am interested in, what I am curious of, is how it shines a little bit of a different light under certain circumstances. I also want I'm going to say something kind of strange. I want to give special praise for how they adapted five into the movie. I I thought about getting a full list of all the changes because it's rather substantial, but most of it is looking at what should be, looking at what shouldn't be and trying to address the point of a scene rather than the the literal mechanics of a scene. So for example, we have the insane asylum scene in the book, right? Uh, And it's like, hey, Mr. Lockhart, and, you know, there's a bunch of stuff that happens. It's like, yay, woo. The main thrust of that scene is to get exposition on Neville and what happened to him with regards to Bellatrix Lestrange. That is then baked into another scene so we can get the same general concept in a much more truncated format, and they don't have to make another set. In short, I think they did a good job. I imagine I'm going to get a lot of people who are angry at me for that, and that's okay. You know, I'm I'm not again. I'm not saying I prefer the movies. I just think they did a good job adapting the movies. Okay. Now you're probably thinking, Laura, why are you bringing this up at this point? Well, the next thing we see is that Harry's expelled, and then they just kind of move on to the next scene. In the book, there was a a flurry of letters, just letter, letter, letter. See, the point is because in the book it's making it very clear early on that Harry is a pawn in, in politics, in the political game of the Ministry of Magic. In the movie we do get that inference, but it doesn't happen until later. The book also makes it seem a little bit more like Dumbledore is just another politician, especially given how much he ignores Harry, whereas in the movie it seems more like Dumbledore's are ignoring Harry for who knows why. No explanation is given at all. It's left as a complete mystery until the end when it's solved. Now I point all this out <clears throat> because, again... Not better, not worse. I mean, obviously, you can give your preference on it, but it is a completely different tone for certain events. I was actually finding myself thinking it's so strange, because I don't think there's anyone like Harry Potter in real life. Not really. Even though Harry is mostly famous when it comes to his own nation, so even if we were just to limit it to someone who is extremely famous and extremely beloved and well-liked just within their nation, I still don't think I could come up with anyone. (sighs) Keanu Reeves, maybe? I don't know. Imagine if... The current president of the United States was trying to use Keanu Reeves and, as as part of a political game. and Okay, that doesn't... It doesn't get across. It doesn't get across. There's no equivalent. Moving on. So, <clears throat> we get introduced to Tonks and Kingsley, which is awesome. I wish they were actually in the film. <laughs> I think Tonks has a total of three scenes. And we see a very brief thing about her hair changing color, and that's it. Although that is a good way to exposit that she can do that. And Sirius, now I just got to say, um, I am legitimately impressed what they were able to do with Sirius Black in this film. He looks affable, warm, loving, kind. I, he also looks madman and insane back in 3, but my point being, they do a really good job. Gary Oldman, I mean, he's a great actor. He's He's probably in my top 50 of actors, which I know sounds like a lot, but trust me, it, it's hard to get into that top 50. I've seen a lot of actors in my life. And Gary Oldman probably deserves to be in that top 50. But usually he does a slightly darker role. Seeing him so effortlessly pull off this kind of fatherly figure, though, this warm, embracing figure, it's actually kind of strange to see. I mean, it's not that surprising. The man has talent. And he does it flawlessly. Sirius clearly comes across as someone who really, really cares about Harry. There's a lot of exposition that is uh, not stated outright in the film that has nevertheless gotten across with regards to the relationship between Sirius and Harry. Now, granted, they also got some interactions back in the fourth film, but my point overall being that we don't need to sit down and have the movie say, and that's, and so Harry feels very fondly of his, his basically father, his godfather, who cares about him deeply, and in addition to wanting him to be kind of like his own father, treats him as if he's already a grown adult, And has a bit of a rebellious streak, thanks to the fact that he himself rebelled from his family. They don't need to exposit all that. We get all that. It's all shown there. The only part of that that's actually straight-up exposited is how he mentions how he bailed on his home, which they're in for the headquarters, very early on. That's it. Harry is also very disconnected. This is probably one of the biggest themes of this particular film. Whether it's a theme of the book is debatable, but I I would actually argue this is probably the second biggest theme here overall. Whether you are alone or whether you're part of a group. As someone who covers JRPGs on a regular basis, I have to say that I am rather familiar with the my friends are my power trope. But as I have said many times, tropes aren't bad. Clichés aren't bad. It's how you use them and what you do with them. And I happen to actually really enjoy the very concept of cooperation, coordination, teamwork, etc. Um, One of my favorite games of all time, Final Fantasy VI, is all about the bonds that connect people to each other. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because Harry is functionally disconnected from everyone for a huge chunk of this film. And we see it right off the beginning. Dumbledore said, we don't need to keep you in the loop. And another good example of expedition. In the book, they mention how Harry's been just in the dark for months at this point. But in the film, we don't get that until this scene, where they're like, Oh, God, we wanted to write you. We wanted to tell you. And why didn't you? Why didn't you? By simple, logical, natural dialogue, the exposition is still shoved on screen and done very efficiently. This is part of why I say I think they did a good job of taking book to film. Just just, just making my point further here. So, this also brings me to another bit. Um, This is when I want to talk about Fudge, Cornelius Fudge, because Fudge, (laughs) he was kind of a, a poofster, really. Uh, in the previous books and films, he was designed to just be like, oh yes, the the kindly but inept minister. You ever see the fil- uh, you ever see the show Yes Minister? Because I could see him being on that show, like like just copy one to one. <laughs> if you haven't seen that show, don't. It's extremely depressing, funny as hell. <laughs> it's it's one of the most cynical shows I've ever seen in my life. Uh, I find it very funny, which probably says something about me. Fudge, though, well, I want to give special praise to the actor, and I suppose the director as well, because the way he portrays this role is as if it's just logical. I mean, you just told me that Martians are invading from the moon. I mean, that's just stupid that they don't even come from the moon. They come from Mars. Why would they be coming from the moon? Okay, look, now, I know you, and I trust you. You know, we've we've been working together for a long time, but for you to just kind of out of nowhere... Just tell me that Martians are coming from the moon. That doesn't, there's got to be a reason for that. There's got to be some kind of purpose in that. Because if Martians really were coming from the moon, that would be terrifying. They they did this once before. I was alive during that time. I was probably in the government at that point in time. And I don't know if I could take that kind of pressure. I don't know if I could withstand knowing that that's true. So, it, I mean, so the fact that it's just so nonsensical, it has to be, you're after my job. That's it, that's it, isn't it? You've got all this power and all this money. You've got the the schooling. You've got the backing of half the wizarding world. Ha- uh, of course, what you're really after is is my position. You want to finish your career on top as the new Minister of Magic. That, uh, okay, okay, that makes so much more sense. That is so much better than saying that Voldemort is back, which is the analogy for the Martians thing. If I didn't make that clear. As much as he is an antagonist of this film, and he is, Fudge is very relatable and understandable, in my opinion, and I think they do a wonderful job with that. He is someone on the... I was originally going to say the right side and the left side, and then I remembered that in modern politics that's actually a thing, and I actually don't mean anything about that whatsoever. So let's just say that he's in the middle, and I'll explain more about that later. So we get to the Ministry. Um, Actually, real quick, before we get to the mystery, there's another great scene with Sirius, who, of course, is trying to back Harry, who wants to be a part of the Order, who wants to just sign up, screw school. It's actually everyone else who slams their foots down, and like, no, no, he's going to school. Now, in hindsight, this does make sense. School has protection. I mean, he is extremely, extremely well protected at Hogwarts. That might be one of the most defensible fortresses in the entire island and Snape is there and Dumbledore's there and McGonagall is there so i mean they've got a decent chance of not only keeping harry safe but getting him ready so okay that'll come up later by the way so and then we get to the ministry which is loud and chaotic and has lots of people and now this is the really strange part and i want you to remember this because i don't remember this being a thing from the books but the film with analysis mode on, is clearly making a point here. The Ministry is loud, chaotic, and just boisterous, right? Just like everything in the Wizarding World is. It's always loud. It's always ridiculous. It's always over the top. You remember the bus in the third film? The two-decker bus, right? All of these things are just... (laughs) That's the tone the Wizarding World has always had, especially in the films. That's kind of true in the books, too. Now, why am I bringing this up? Well, this is important. That system, if you want to call it that, works. It's kind of a controlled chaos, so to speak. Now that's important because the next thing we see, I mean literally the next scene, is in the deep, dark, dank dungeons where we go to the trial. And they have a full criminal proceedings for a case of underage magic, which kind of shows how amateurish of a politician Fudge is. It's a good thing Dumbledore doesn't actually want his job, because if he did, he'd probably get it. So, <clears throat> we have a, we go to the court case, and it is orderly, quiet, you know, everything's rigid, right? It, in short, feels exactly the opposite of the Wizarding World's usual tonality. So, that, Well, that's the beginning of that particular trend. Now, for a decent chunk of the film, it feels like this could easily be just what Fudge wants. The film itself makes it explicit this is actually being pushed pushed by Miss Umbridge. I hate Dolores Umbridge. I've known people like that in real life. Um... I will go so far as to say, and, and I'll talk about this later, one of the things that brings this film down for me is the presence of Dolores Umbridge. She is monumentally unpleasant. And she is so disgustingly, smugly, venomously unpleasant that I actually want her off my screen, as I like to call it. There's a, there's a difference between a character you hate, but you love seeing, and a character you just want to get off your screen. Right? She's the latter for me. I'm curious what you guys think. I know she's one of the most despised characters in the, in the franchise, but what do you think on this particular uh, paradigm? So she, uh, she's horrible. She's also wonderfully horrifically fake. And this leads me back to Fudge and the case briefly because Fudge pushes for a quick, quick conclusion. You notice that, right? Okay, here you are. Did you do this? Are you guilty of this? Okay, let's let's pray verdict. Now, this is what we call uh, technical, actually no, it's technical interpretation of the law. Funny fact, the, I've, I've used that term technically for years. The origination of that term was specifically because of lawyers technically interpreting the law to do wrong, to do something incorrect. Um, that's what Fudge does here. Because he looks at the situation as if the only things that matter are, did you do this, the end? Binary choice. However, even in the wizarding world, things are not so binary. For example, um, let's say that you are... Let Just hear me out for a second, because I swear this is relevant. Let's say for a second that there's some really stupid law that you can't walk on a specific chunk of grass, okay? So imagine for a moment that a judge pulls you in and says, did you walk on this grass? And you're like, well, well, yes. Well, then you're guilty. Sentence. Going to Azkaban or whatever. The problem is that's not justice or fairness or anything, really. That's just stupidity. Because let's go back to that circumstance. What actually happened is you were falling and you ended up tumbling forward and you were you basically ended up falling into it, trying desperately not to fall into it, and immediately got back out of this t- particular chunk of territory. Now, that might still make you partially guilty, but that's what we call a mitigating circumstance. Now, I don't want to get too much into legalese here, but I bring this up specifically because that is how weak of a case that he has. He is ignoring the law in, pr- in service of what is effectively an excuse, to try and remove Harry from a position of influence and power and trying to distance Harry from Dumbledore, which is something Cornelius Fudge wants, after all. He thinks later on that Harry is literally going to be part of arming an army for Dumbledore, which is uh, funny when you think about it. There's also a really powerful scene where Dumbledore reaches out personally. He doesn't say Fudge, he doesn't say Minister. He says, Cornelius, please, you have to believe me. And this goes back to my characterization for Fudge I just mentioned. And you can feel for the man. He's an antagonist. But you can understand that. That panic. That raw, just bleeding fear. I understand that kind of fear personally. I hope most of you don't. In my experience, not everyone experiences that type of raw, mindless fear. It does some really messed up things to the brain. So I can perfectly see people reacting this way. (laughs) Dumbledore then, of course, you know, brings up mitigating circumstances, and in fact points out that it is actually legal to cast in front of a muggle to save someone's life. (laughs) So there's actually no illegality here whatsoever. Go figure. So that's dealt with. You'll notice Cornelius doesn't even, that is to say fudge, doesn't even have a counter-argument to that. He just calls for a vote, like, all right, let's get it over with. You win this time, Dumbledore. But yeah, this is when we're also introduced to Umbridge, who was horrible, as usual. I'm looking at my notes here. I just to, I'm just debating which order I want to talk of these in. So, I wrote the actress's name down. I hope I'm going to pronounce this correctly. Imelda Stenton is the woman who plays Umbridge. I've seen her in a few things. She's actually fine in most everything else. She does a disturbingly good job of playing someone I want the hell off my screen in this film. What do you think she's after? Even in the books, we never really see into her mind. We get a lot of insight into a lot of the supporters of Voldemort across the series. And we get a lot of mentality on exactly how they think and why they think and the direction they're going with it. But we never really get an insight into why she is the way she is. She does eventually support the Voldemort regime in, in Book 7 and Movies 7. But, actually, was she in the movie? I don't actually remember. But she does in the book. Um, but what is her angle? Now, I do have a theory on that. But I just, I just wanted to ask you this question now because I'm curious what you guys think. Especially, again, trying to keep ourselves focused on the film. Because I, do, I don't do books. <laughs> Tried that once; It didn't work out. <sighs> so now we see uh, Voldemort starting to reach out to Harry. Just in tiny little tidbits. It could be argued that he's just kind of scouting, you know, play, seeing the field, seeing how it works, trying to play at their connection. Now that Voldemort is fully you know, aware and cognizant and has his own body and blah, blah, blah. This is also when we encounter Luna Lovegood, who might actually be my favorite character in the entire franchise. I'm not sure, but she's definitely up there. Um, (laughs) I say that unironically. In fact, I think the woman they got to play her, which is Ivana Lynch, I wrote her name down. uh, She does a really, really good job of the role. And she also is an excellent example of how even the wizarding world, which we perceive as odd, because we are normal muggles, can be have things that are odd within the wizarding world. So she is portrayed as odd. Now this is actually interesting, because the way they do this in the film is they have other people react to her as if she's odd. Now I I point that out because if they didn't, if they acted as if she was completely normal, she's not really all that off from our perspective. She's just another wizard who's weird. They're all weird. All of them are kooky, right? That's kind of a point. There are very few wizards who are all austere and serious. For the most part, they're all just... So we would just look at her and be like, Okay, it is important that the other characters act as if she's a little bit weird so that we can then understand that by their standards, she is weird. I'll circle back to that point later, too. So, obviously the drama I mentioned of politics is affecting Harry and his school life. (laughs) Thankfully, they kind of de-emphasize this. There's a bit with Seamus, twice, actually. and I want to talk about this briefly because this is probably the best specific down-to-earth showcasing of the crime of fear in the entire film, in my opinion. Seamus is like, rah, at Harry, and Harry reacts badly. Now, you'll notice Seamus, well, he starts off kind of bad, He's still not really being all that provocative. Not, not really. He's not really provoking Harry. Harry then insults him back, which makes Sha- Seamus come back. This then leads to Ron coming in, but then Ron reaches out to Harry, who is dismissed by him. What do we get out of all of this? Harry's upset. Ron's upset. Seamus is upset. And this is important as well. Seamus's mother is upset. Right? This is fear. And all of these people are victims of it. Seamus is afraid, because he doesn't know what to think of it, probably mostly entirely because his mother's afraid. His mother was alive the last time. His mother's afraid, and she's afraid for her job. This makes Seamus afraid, because he's afraid for her. This makes him provoke Harry, who's afraid in general right now. Harry then pushes back Ron, and you could see how even though each specific connecting point isn't the same, all of these people are injured by the core point of fear. Look at my notes. Um, yeah, so let's, let's talk about Umbridge some more. I love talking about her. She's just so wonderful. Ah, I just want to kind of, uh, I would without hesitation. Hi, Miss Umbridge. Ash. I want to talk about that quill. That quill is messed up. There, are, I know this is gonna sound like a really weird question, but you, do you know what it feels like to have your skin cut? Because I do. <laughs> hey, don't worry, it's not—it's not what you're thinking. But I—I I have cuts, I have scars. I've, I got a really big one. You probably can't see it on camera. A Really big one. To this day, I got a couple over here. I got one on the back of my hand. I got scars everywhere. I got three right here. I know what that feels like. It's not a fun feeling. I have a pretty high pain tolerance, but there's something unique about your skin being cut, and what his what this thing does, the movie shows it differently than the book, is you write and then it just it writes it in it carves it into your hand. It's also into your hand in general, which is a pretty sensitive area. It's not the palm of your hand that would be messed up beyond words it instead, it's only extremely messed up because it's on the back of your hand and um yeah, I don't even know where to start with this. It literally writes the message in blood of the person. That is the definition of a cursed artifact. If this was Dungeons and Dragons and I had that item be found by my players, they would be like, oh my god, this is extremely cursed. We need to destroy it. Or or maybe try to, you know, uncurse it. Because god, this is evil and horrible and Dolores Umbrich just happens to have this thing, as we see later. She also knows the, Cru- the Cruciatus curse. So, uh... Says a lot, doesn't it? There's this really good scene. I, I do appreciate this director quite a lot. Um, there's this really good scene where she is com- uh, confronting McGonagall. They're on the staircase. Brilliant, brilliant choice by the director. Because what happens, McGonagall, the actress... Uh, oh, I can't think of her name. <sighs> I'm not going to try. The actress who plays McGonagall is substantially taller than Amelda uh, Stanton, who plays Umbridge. So, they start off, like, here, and then Umbridge takes a step up and continues the conversation. Then McGonagall takes a step up and continues the conversation at level. Then Umbridge takes another step up as she brings in the authority of the ministry. McGonagall then takes a step down as the conversation winds down, as she is horrified by what she's seeing. And the whole time, as a result of this, their, their eye level kind of goes from, it's this to this to this, to this, to this, to this. And we can see the the literal physical flow of the conversation. It was a very, very inspired choice. One of the best directing choices in the whole film, in my opinion. I know, minor things, but I, I love this kind of stuff. We see a bit of an aside where Luna takes Harry and they're feeding the Thestrals, right? This is a good scene because it also kind of shows why Luna is such an important friend for someone like Harry. Everyone else especially the big two, you know, Ron and Hermione, they're both kind of keeping their distance, and that makes sense. You know, they know him, they know he needs his distance, they know he's being standoffish, and they know what he's been through, so they're being respectful. Luna, of course, just kind of innocently says, I think the Dark Lord wants you to feel alone. Because, well, that way you'll be easier to defeat. (laughs) And it's just such a duh statement. You can almost see the, the light bulb go up over Harry's face like, Oh, yeah, And the very next scene, jump cut, he's in the, the great hall reaching out to his friends. Like, hey, can I sit here? I want you to keep that in mind, by the way. That's a, that's a building point. As, as, as I said before, there's a couple of major points in this film. We then see a montage. And this is a montage of proclamations and of umbrage being horrible. It's portrayed kind of in a silly manner. Like, it's just antics. We also have the the whimsical music for one of the only times in the film plays during this montage. Um, I'm not sure why. This is literally a dictator slowly... Ab- no, wrong word. This is a tyrant. A dictator just means a single point of power. A tyrant means a corrupt, evil single point of power. Tyrant equals evil dictator, put simply. So this is a tyrant slowly garnering more and more political power unto herself in order to uh, make everything worse, basically. <laughs> so we see this montage and we see her investigating the people and just looking down on everyone. We can tell she is a horribly bigoted racist, by the way. She makes that very clear, this film. That's probably one of her problems, going back to my earlier point of what she's about. Then she tries to get Trelawney out. You remember Trelawney, right? You know, the visions, prophecies, right? You know what I find funny? This isn't really shown in the films, but in the books, I know I said I wouldn't, but hear me out. I swear there's a point to be made here. She was portrayed as a, well, I don't want to say an antagonist, but an unpleasant thing. Uh, No, that's not not a good word. Uh, A disagreeable thing. Something that Harry didn't want to deal with. A negative here in this film, we see Trelawney being bullied, because that's what it is, by Umbridge. And Umbridge is just smug about the whole thing. She's delighted. There's no regrets. There's no, I'm afraid I have to do this for the sake of the school. There's no, I'm afraid, I'm sorry, but thanks to a vision of it. No, 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 no. She is happy. Ah, oh, your God, goodbye. You can't do this. Oh, but I can. I absolutely can. This has been my home for 19 years. That's nice. Have a safe trip. This, of course, then puts things into massive contrast. Again, wonderful visual direction. The doors open. Massive, tall doors. And Dumbledore's just standing there, alone, by the way, in the middle of the doors, flanked by no one. Just, just, it's this image of Dumbledore. Just BAM! Zeus has decided to come down and, and stop being a dick for a minute. <laughs> and he's like, Oh, you, you can't actually banish people from the grounds. That's something I can do, because I'm the headmaster. Come on, Trelawney, let's get you back in. It's a powerful scene, but it also is a dangerous scene, because the problem is Dumbledore... Dumbledore's playing a different game. I know that sounds strange, but what I mean by that is Umbridge, Fudge, and the Ministry are playing checkers. Dumbledore is playing chess. But they are both playing the same game against each other. Kind of. And that's the problem. <laughs> you see, you're probably thinking, what? Does it work? Exactly! That is exactly what's going on here. So Dumbledore does very many smart things that enable him to push his game forward that actually cost him in the game that he's not really playing against the Ministry. This is a good example of this. This kind of overt move, politically speaking, is actually kind of a mistake. There's plenty of other ways he could have gone around this to make sure she was taken care of and to try and curtail the growing power of the Ministry. Instead, he just flat-out says, yeah, come on in. (laughs) Eh. Anyways. This then leads to Hermione's point. Hermione brings Harry and Ron out to... uh, I forget what the name of it is. the, the, The place. And he meets... They meet with a bunch of kids. And this is the main theme of the film right here. We've finally gotten to the first real demonstrable point of it, although there have been points before, if you've been paying attention to me. I mentioned that Fudge is part of the middle. i drew a diagram on my second page of notes here. Because on one half is evil, on the other half is good, and then you have the other 99% of people, and they're in the middle. Given the times and given the build-up, the whole film up to this point has been making the point clear that people like Fudge are in power and that no one is willing to to fight and no one is willing to believe the truth and we're all going to go down like blind, stupid sheep because we refuse to stand up. And then this scene proves that that's actually completely wrong. This is Hermione's point that I already started the sentence with, that there are more people who are willing to think than you'd imagine in the middle. There are more people in there than, like, like, I, I'm sorry, this is going to sound stupid, but how many times have you looked at the world and said, well, we're all screwed and everything's horrible forever? Now, I've argued against that mentality for uh, my entire life. That's how long it's been going on that I'm aware of. It's because when all you hear is the negative stories, And when all you see is negative media, or negative press, or negative concepts, or negative whatever, it's kind of easy to build a framework. Your your mind naturally builds frameworks. That's what it's designed to do. I say designs. You know what I mean. That's that's what the mind does, by design. There we go. That's a good way to put that. Your mind takes information and builds a larger picture out of it. So if you have... This is going to sound like the stupidest analogy ever, but if you're making a Lego piece... And let's assume red Legos are good things and blue Legos are bad things. I know this is... just bear with me, okay? And if all you get is, like, 50 blue Legos and, like, three red ones, what kind of picture are you going to have there? Right? The film then shows that that's not true because there are plenty of people who are not negative, who are not stupid, who are not blind, who are willing to do something about things. They're not good really. They're in the middle, just like Fudge's. Now, that's, that's, that's the point I made, mentioned earlier. Fudge really is in the middle, just like most of these other people are. It's someone like Umbridge, who is actually evil. Fudge is just another person. Now, Fudge is the kind of person who's like, nah, 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 can't deal with it. But I like that the film goes, goes out of its way to show that not everyone is like that. So they named themselves Dumbledore's Army. <sighs> this is why... As much as I enjoy doing it as, as much as anyone else, if I was ever to do anything real, I wouldn't name it anything significant at all. It, it'd be like... The Pink Purples. You know, it would have nothing to do with anything. It would be the name of our secret organization or whatever. Our secret society. Team meetings at 12, by the way. And... Because there's two... I mean, it's a nice thing to think of, you know, the, the great power of intimate... You know, Dumbledore's army. Let's just use the directing example. Dumbledore's army. But the problem is, if you don't know that that's basically just a joke, then you look at that and think, oh my god, Dumbledore's filming an army, which of course is exactly what happens later on. Real quick thing before I move forward. Filch seems fully on, on board with Umbridge, right? You might think... Is Filch horrible? No. Filch is in the middle. Filch is mostly in this for comedic effect, but you can kind of see how he is being portrayed as someone who is on the other side of the fence, to put it into simplistic terms, as the kids were willing to stand up and rebel. So the Room of Requirement shows up. On the one hand, it's basically the plot convenience room, and will be so for the next for this film and the next three films. On the other hand, this even amongst a setting in which magic is far more concretely defined, morphic properties of geological terrain is actually a pretty normal thing, and I a place that can change depending on the circumstances, that can physically alter its terrain and outline. Even Zelda does this to a very small extent. So, the idea of a room that is a morphic room that makes perfect sense to me I, I don't have any problems with that. I also have to admit the film portrays it in a lot more limited fashion than most other things do. most most of the books do I mean, so I'm actually kind of more okay with it in the film. as we see, it's literally just a room that happens to have you know morphic properties within it, but it is still physically located in a physical spot that's right there and can be accessed so Anywho. <clears throat> there's this nice bit where Harry, oh yeah, I'm not going to talk about the Cho thing like at all. That was always a mistake. I thought that was a mistake in the books. I thought it was a mistake even having it in the films. The only reason for Harry to crush on Cho is for him to understand that your first crush isn't your one true love. That's not how that works. Moving on. Harry sees Arthur in a vision. And it's like, oh God, oh God, how do I deal with this? This leads, of course, to you know, Arthur's life being saved, which is awesome. Here's the problem. Problem number one, that is an obvious conduit and window between Voldemort and Harry, as we see him portraying Nagini when Nagini was attacking Arthur. So that's not good. Snape actually points out the obviousness of this. It's, it's a two-way connection. If Voldemort starts pushing the other way, he can do whatever he wants to. And Voldemort was known for torturing people into insanity and making them beg for death before he kills them. You don't want that window open unless you can control it, Harry. This, is th- this then leads us into one of the biggest reasons why Harry needs to be at Hogwarts, so that he can get this training from Snape. That goes wonderfully, of course. Um... Harry has some good scenes. I'm just kind of skipping over a few scenes. He has some good scenes with Sirius. Sirius mentions a lot of things I already mentioned about him bailing on the family, about him caring about Harry. He also gives a speech to Harry, which, funnily enough, is the biggest speech indicating the point I've been making about the main theme of the film. The people in the middle. You know, we all have parts of good, and dark, and light, and evil, and whatever within us. It's, it's what we choose to do that matters. And he gives, he gives it wonderfully because, of course he does, because <laughs> he's Sirius Black. Umbridge, of course, so Hagrid comes back. Hagrid has been absent most of the film, and we find out why very quickly. I don't actually have much to say about that side bit. I could speculate on the giants and how the natural, specious nature of the Ministry of Magic has probably pushed giants into Voldemort's camp, and blah, 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 blah. And, of course, there's Gropp, who might as well not even be in the film, except for the fact that he intervenes with Umbridge, barely. I do want to mention one thing about this, though. There's Cherry Owls in this film. I'm sorry. I never noticed this before. When they're in the Great Meeting Hall shortly after this scene, there's a box which looks a whole lot like a box of Cheerios. And it caught my attention because I'm like, well, hang on a second. Do you guys even have Cheerios in Britain? I don't actually know. I know you have a lot of different brands over there. So I'm like, wait, Cheerios? And I rewound, and I was like, hang on. And it was cheery owls, and I was just, okay. (laughs) Sure. No, what I really want to talk about is umbrage. (laughs) Of course I do. As a bit of an addendum to why she might be doing this, she tries to mark herself with perfume, because, ah, that way I'll smell better. I don't actually smell better, but it certainly seems like I smell better. This is, I know it's such a minor thing, but I bring this up because... I think that right there is Umbridge's motive. It doesn't matter if it actually smells better. What matters is if she thinks it smells better. So she puts the perfume, and of course she does the X on his door. And I think that explains everything about her. Her cutesy facade, her pink motif, her cats, her order. Towards the end of the film, there's an owl examination, which is all a bunch of students in very rigid lines with nothing going on except for very strict, clean, orderly order, and then the Weasley twins get involved, and for some reason don't go to jail, even though, despite the fact that they are leaving the school, and they would still qualify as adults, and this is still something that could be, you know, a crime, but let, let's just let's just move on from that right now. They do have bigger things to worry about than two kids after all. Moving on. This is after Dumbledore left. I suppose I, suppose I should rewind just a second. Let me get back to that point. Nah, I'm, I'm going to finish making my point, because I'm in the middle of it. She wants order. Not real order. Not when things are patterned and working smoothly, which is what they were doing, if you pay attention. I already talked about that. Controlled chaos. She doesn't want that. She wants lines. Rigid. Nothing else. This is how it has to be. And there's several very key lines. I I mentioned the perfume thing which just kind of cracks open the motive for me. This is all my theorizing, by the way. But she also mentions how she's the one who told Fudge. She's the one. I told you the whole time Dumbledore was behind this. And there's a couple of other little lines that get across the idea that Umbridge has been the venom in Fudge's ear. That she has been the one pushing him to do... to have this latest push and... Well, that makes a lot of sense to me. (laughs) That makes so much sense to me. He's afraid, and frankly ineffectual. He's a minister, after all. And so you can kind of see how he would fall so easily prey to someone like her. And she apparently does have some clout within the ministry, too, so that doesn't help either. Now, I'm talking... She makes everything just really um, artificially orderly, right? And even she is willing to do what she knows is wrong in order to accomplish her greater right, because it's okay. She can always spray a little perfume on it afterwards. This woman is willing to perform the Cruciatus Curse in front of witnesses on a child. Really, anything else I say about this woman pales in comparison to that. If my tone doesn't get it across, I really do firmly despise Umbridge. <laughs> and then she's taken off and, you know, uh, the centaurs do whatever they do to her. <clears throat> no, nah, she doesn't deserve that. She does deserve to be cessated, though. Like I said, let's rewind a second. So there's a big breakout. Lestrange licks her tattoo what I like about that by the way all of the characterization we need for Bellatrix Lestrange is gotten with that one scene with that one action that's all we need to know about her <laughs> I'm serious it shows her devotion her insanity her unhinged nature and her uh, unpleasantly uh, love affair with Voldemort himself so, yeah I yeah, know that that's all I needed to see thanks Dumbledore lays down his position because Dumbledore's army has been found out. This, of course, is probably the biggest point at which the chess versus checkers things come in. Because they're playing at checkers, they're they're playing at politics. Dumbledore is trying to defeat Voldemort and trying to get the world ready to go for Voldemort. And that means a lot of things, not the least of which being Harry has to be here and safe and keep getting lessons from Snape. So he immediately capitulates... And says, nope, yep, nope, you totally got me. I was doing it the whole time. Peace! And he's out. With style, of course, as Kingsley so accurately points out. (laughs) What happens next is an interesting sequence of scenes. Because it helps to show how... Well, Sirius's point was valid, wasn't it? That... A lot of the flashback in... Snape's mind was cut, but we do see just enough to get across the point that James was pretty horrible to Snape. He was a bully, to put it bluntly. Now, this is actually very powerful to anyone who's been following the series, and if you're on the fifth film, you probably have been, because we've been encountering bullies since the first film, or first book, if you prefer. The idea of bullying has been universally portrayed as negative, as it should be. It's a bad thing. So to see James... Bullying like that. That's a shock to the system. And we see how it has affected Snape so much that despite the stakes and despite understanding what it means, he still refuses to teach Harry anymore. That's. that's how much that hurt him. That's how much it still hurts him. Because Snape is. well, he's alone. Uh, you could argue that he has Dumbledore, and I would argue against that. Mm-hmm. Snape is mostly alone, very close to being completely alone. He firmly believes in that type of ideology. There's a point at which Harry says, the less you have, the less you care about, the the less weaknesses you have, the less you have to lose, the less bad things can happen. And there is a very strong logic in that, and that is the path that Snape has taken. Despite that path, he is still wounded by bullying, and the very next scene is a little kid who I wrote down his name, Michael. I don't even know who the kid is, but they actually say his name is Michael. It's this little kid, and he's crying. Why? Because Umbridge is bullying him, forcing him to do the, the lines with the cursed quills. This also helps to show into contrast how bad is not a universal denominator. That there are gradients in bad, that there are variances in bad, because what James did was wrong, and what Umbridge does is monstrous. So Harry gives his big thing, like I just mentioned. You know, I mean, what what are we gonna do? We gonna should I be alone? Should we be together? And this is pretty much the final time Harry faces this particular question. This is when that particular theme concludes. Harry decides, you know, bonds of teamwork, cooperation, friendship, and love are more important than trying to stick it out for yourself. And as much as I point out that Snape mostly follows that mindset, I keep adding that proviso at the end. This is a bit spoiler for the future, but all I'm gonna say is that it's pretty clear Snape isn't completely alone. Not like someone else I can mention. <clears throat> Voldemort, excuse me. Mm. So we so they go. They try to deal with things. We got this. Um, This is also when the film does a clever little thing, uh, a little bit of a complexity. Uh, One of the things that fiction tends to do is, well, this happened this way, therefore that sets a standard, that sets a precedent, so it's going to happen that way going forward. Harry saw a vision, and that saved Arthur's life. So now he saw a vision, and it got Sirius killed. But he thought he was going to save Sirius's life, and instead, well... now, the scene in the, in the Halls of Mystery, or Mystery of Magic, or whatever it is, is, is much truncated from the book. And that's okay for me, because some of those things were, <sighs> like, the, like the time room, or the brain room. But uh, <clears throat> I'm just going to fast forward through most of this, because I only have one real thing to say about it. And that is Lucius Malfoy. Or, Lucius, is Malfoy's last name? Lu- Lucius. Lucius, um, he's interesting. Because he has been portrayed as if he is as bad as bad gets uh, in several films, but here he is. Ma- he has. He didn't really have a lot of presence in three or four. Now he's making a big comeback, and he is obviously an open. Well, I say open. He's a obvious Death Eater. He is a supporter of Lord Voldemort, so he's one of the bad guys. But as the film has taken great pains to show, that doesn't. That's not a universal, unilateral, binary thing. And the film even then has the, has the amusement of putting him literally right next to Bellatrix Lestrange. By showing her in contrast to him, we can see the variances of bad and how different that tends to be. You'll notice Lucius is the one, it, it, this is, in my opinion, the beginning of them starting to show more layers and dimensions to Lucius. And starting to gray him out a bit. Don't mistake me, he's not a good person. But I do think he's in the middle. I think he's just someone who is always sided with the side of power and prestige that, that he's got the family tradition to uphold, pure blood, etc. He probably is actually a racist, I'm not sure, I don't have any evidence for or against. Not really. So, um yeah. But then when as I mean, spoilers, as things progress in the future we start to see that he is nowhere near as bad as some of the others. He is nowhere near on that level. And I've always gotten the very strong impression that Lucius didn't actually know just how bad Bad could get underneath Voldemort. And once he was in there, he was kind of trapped. If I was to relate him to another character, for those of you who get this reference, I would say he's similar to Damar over on Deep Space Nine. He's not a good guy. But you can see how he's a substantial difference than, say, the female changeling. So Lucius reaches out to them, and, and there's this big awesome scene, and then they escape, and then there's another big awesome scene. Um, this is when the wisp thing really starts to come into overdrive. This is actually one of the things I don't like about this film and future films. They do this wisp thing. They just turn into ghosts and fly around. and Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't like it. It's not my thing. It's a good visual effect. I just, I just don't care for it. And uh, then there's also probably, I'd say, one of the best scenes in the entire film. Get away from my godson, slug, and he just punches him in the face. Oh, I love that so much. So Sirius Black dies in such a way that it's it's very final. There's that's that he's gone. He was hit by the killing curse and then passed through the veil. We don't even know a hundred percent what that thing is. It's just the place where they study death. So that's fun. This, of course, leads to Harry. Fun fact, apparently uh, uh, Daniel Radcliffe, I think, the guy who plays Harry Potter, does actually let out just an absolutely gut-wrenching, horrifying scream. And they ended up getting rid of it and muting it um, because it was too horrible. And, I mean, the muting effect still works. It gets across the point because most of the next scene kind of goes dull and the sound just kind of goes away for almost a solid minute before it starts to come back, right about when he confronts uh, Lestrange up top. And he hits her with Crucio. This again shows the comparison and the point that that Sirius himself made. We all have good and bad in us, right? It depends on what we do with it. And I point this out because this again is another nice parallel, or I guess complete competing point to Umbridge. Remember, and I'm going to make this point really clear, Miss Dolores Umbridge was willing to use the, the, the pain curse as a method of torturing information out of someone who was a child in front of witnesses. <laughs> Meanwhile, Harry is trying to use it, fails, by the way, but tries to use it against someone who just murdered his godfather. Bit of a difference. Again, funnily enough, this actually ties back to the theme of the trial at the very beginning, doesn't it? Sure, you did it, but why did you do it? What were the mitigating circumstances? All of those additional little details matter. Voldemort, of course, eggs him on. Harry doesn't decide to kill her. And Voldemort denounces him as just weak. You know why? Because Harry refused to murder an enemy. Okay, that makes sense. Then uh, Dumbledore comes in. I hope I pronounce this right. Rafe Fiennes? Rafe Fiennes? (sighs) His name is spelled Ralph Fiennes, But that is not how it's pronounced. And I know that. I have tried for years to get used to how he pronounces it. I think it's Rafe. I have a a guide here and I'm still screwing it up. But I know it's Fiennes is is the last name. He's, uh, in my opinion, a very good actor. I don't know if he's the top 50 quality like Mr. Oldman. But he's definitely up there. And uh, you can tell he's just having fun with the role. What he portrays in his brief show, because he doesn't actually get a lot of screen time in this film, what he portrays is someone who is supremely confident of his position, except when it's challenged. Now, if you don't understand that, let me try that again. Let's say that you are a firm believer in such and such, and then you see something that challenges it. There's only two ways to deal with that. No, no, it can't be true. Denial, fear or trying to acknowledge, accept, embrace, and move on. Yes, I just compared Voldemort to Fudge, but not in a positive way in either direction. Voldemort, in his own way, is still ruled by the same fear that he uses on everyone else. And I'll circle back to that point, because the first thing I want to talk about is the fight. It's actually one of the better mage fights, possibly the best mage fight in the entire franchise, movie-wise because it's really cool, and it varies up, and you could tell they put a lot of time and effort into making it work, because what happens, first they do the lightning beams, and that doesn't go anywhere, because they're equal in power. So, nothing happens. So, he summons the fire snake, which then gets slit and combined back into an explosion on Voldemort, who has to defend himself, and while he's defending himself, Dumbledore wraps him up in the bubble to try and drown him. That then gets popped, so Voldemort sets out a massive concussive force, which shatters all the glass. Nice bit, by the way. The glass from Voldemort shreds the the poster of Fudge up on the wall. Very nice touch there. Shreds it up, and then he flings the glass shards at Dumbledore, who shreds them down into sand. I'm hoping that's literally sand, not glass sand, because, like, glass sand? You get that in your eye? <laughs> Anywho. <clears throat> this, of course, then leads to Voldemort being like, okay... And he possesses, he, put, he, he, tries to, he tries to possess Harry. This is interesting. Because then Harry sees horrible, dark, terrible things that have happened to him. And this leaves an interesting impression. That the only way Voldemort can really fit, the only way he can actually be a part of someone, is if they feel the way he does all the time. Pain, fear, misery, anguish, loneliness. All of these things are what Voldemort feels all the time. And so he evokes these emotions in Harry so he could fully consume him and actually possess him. This is the first sign of just how truly broken of a human being Voldemort actually is, if you can call him human at this point in time. Harry, of course, listens to Dumbledore. You know, obviously it's not how you're this, it's the same, it's how you're different. Again, we all have blah 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 blah, you know, that theme coming back up again. So Harry thinks of all the wonderful, amazing, fun things that are in his life, and Voldemort, that's a poison to him. That's an anathema, or an- anathema, if you prefer. He can't deal with that. He can't take that. He is ejected, not by power or magic, but simply because he literally cannot withstand that kind of red Lego. And so he gets shoved right out. And in his final moments, he preaches, you're a fool and you'll lose everything. And in all his posturing, and he has overextended himself. And he is actually seen by the Minister of Magic, who, seeing the fact that Martians are in fact vading from Moon, immediately, oh, he's back. And from then on, you can kind of see the rest of it. Now, I don't have much to say about the ending. Everything just kind of concludes in the way that you'd expect there. I've talked a lot about the big themes of this work, about um, you know what we choose determines how we are, uh, themes of whether you choose to be alone or choose to be connected to other people, and of course the theme of the people in the middle, which is, which is in my opinion, the biggest theme of the whole work. These help to really elevate this film for me. If it's not obvious, I really enjoyed this film. I don't think it surpasses three, per se. If I was to use my own terminology for the reviews I actually do, I would say five has more positives than three, but also has more negatives than it, which I think is what kind of pulls it a little bit below three in terms of overall quality. But make no mistake, this is still an excellent and awesome film. A film which I hope you have enjoyed my thoughts on, and in which I will see you next time.